0: This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. A gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. This morning's reading of God's Holy Word comes from Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad.
1: Now uh, join with me as we see God's face in prayer once again. Father God, we acknowledge you this morning as our great God. We know that there is none other than you. Father, most of us this morning could not imagine what life would be like without acknowledging you as our God. We could not say in our heart, there is no God. Most of us can't imagine what it is like to go through life with the ups and downs, the struggles, the disappointments, the discouragements, with no hope, with no expectation of your love and your grace, never to experience your loving care surrounding us with your wonderful divine arms and not having any hope for the future. But Father, we acknowledge today that you are our God. We do know that you love us in spite of ourselves. As we've been reminded already this morning in the reading of the psalm and the singing of the psalm, we are sinners, we all fall short. Not one of us deserves your grace and your kindness, but we are on the receiving end of your wonderful love and mercy. And we thank you, Lord, for that rich privilege. Again, Lord, we thank you that you have sustained us through this time of distress that we have gone through. People all around the world have been impacted by this pandemic. Lord we thank you that we're coming out of it that week by week more of our people are returning to uh, to in person worship it is so wonderful to see faces that we have not seen in a while we just thank you that you have sustained us and encouraged us and Lord we are so grateful for the men and women who are joining our church and as the bulletin has the names of of uh, families who are uniting with our church family. We are so so glad to receive them and embrace them and include them in our family. Again, Lord, for all who are hurting, grieving, sorrowing, going through distress and their own traumas of life, we ask your abundant mercy and kindness. We ask your peace. We ask your support. Father, help us to be men and women who are ready to look around, to see the needs around us, to minister to one another, to minister to those outside of the family of God, to be a beacon of your grace and love to the needy. We ask now, as uh, Pastor Carr comes, to share um, insights and reflections on this wonderful psalm. We pray that you would give him the very words to share with us that your Holy Spirit would be at work to teach us and to impress upon us the message that the psalmist intended to give. And may your perfect will be done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
2: Good morning, First Press. This morning we look at this 53rd psalm And I believe that there's a clear big idea that this psalm is pushing us towards. So right from the beginning, I'm going to tell you what I believe that big idea to be. The big idea is this. Knowing who God is helps us to better know who we are. And in the end, it makes life so much more sweeter. That's the big idea. And as you think about that big idea, one of the first things we have to wrestle and come to is the belief that self-awareness is to be valued. Can I get an amen to that? Self-awareness is to be valued. I was kind of hesitant on on the amens, but let me give you an expression or an example. Bad breath. Bad breath. When somebody offers you a piece of gum and you resist, oh, no, I'm good. How about a Tic Tac? No, no, I'm good. Self-awareness is pretty important, amen? Hey, <laughs> when people are trying to give a subtle hint, that, hey, I'm trying to help you out, brother. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> Self-awareness is to be valued, but to truly be self-aware is to have a standard outside of ourselves. Let me say that again. Self-awareness is to be valued, but to truly be self-aware is is to have the standard outside of yourself. Now that sounds very foreign to our ears in this culture. In this culture, we're told constantly, you just be you. It's everywhere. It's in the commercials on television. It's in every type of curriculum that you could imagine. The idea is just celebrate you. But if all we have is ourselves... And if we're our own standard, it's much like winning a race when you're the only entry. It's much like being the valedictorian of a class of one. It's cool to win, but what does it really mean? Nothing. See, being your own standard is silly as much as it is dangerous. Let me say that again. Being your own standard is silly as much as it is dangerous. Could you imagine just for a moment if our assistant pastor David decided that one day he was the strongest man in the world? And he decided to go and prove this, literally believing that he was the strongest man in the world. Well, it may be funny to watch for a while, it could become very dangerous for himself, couldn't it? See, there is nothing worse than being with someone who is sole standard is themselves. We call that being self-absorbed. And yet today's culture pushes this in upon us constantly. They're saying being self-aware, being self-happy is all that really matters. Contrary to culture, our Bible text tells us we need a standard outside of ourselves. It's not saying that we should live by everyone else's standards. Let's be very clear. We're not saying that we should go around and try to please everyone. No, it's saying there is one whom should set the standard. There is one who's absolute. There is one who's perfect. There is one who sets the agenda. And that is God. For God is the standard. So actually, being God-aware is more important than even being self-aware. Because again, knowing who God is helps us to better know who we are. And in the end, it makes everything in life that much sweeter. Friends, let's begin by looking at the idea of knowing God. See, knowing God is the key to knowing ourselves. Without knowing God, we cannot know ourselves. Here's why. We're made in God's image. We represent Him. We're to look like Him. In every aspect of our being, we're made in His image. Yet the Bible makes it clear that it's foolish, it's not the wise, it's the foolish who ignore God and his standard. Look at verse 1. The fool says in their heart, There is no God. The fool says in their heart, There is no God. Meaning that there's no set standard. There's no set standard of righteousness or holiness. Just be and do as you see fit. Now, this verse may be one of the most widely known verses in all of the Bible. Yet today, the majority seem to believe the exact opposite. They would say, the real fool is the one who believes. The one who really believes in his heart, there is a God. All around us, we feel the pressure to give up our biblical view of God. All around us, we feel the pressure to give up our biblical standards. We feel it pressuring us and encircling us and enclosing us. Yeah, friends, I would remind you that while this pressure is real, it's not new. In fact, this theme that we've heard already is one that's repeated in Scripture again and again and again. In fact, even in the book of Psalms, Psalm 14 almost mirrors Psalm 53 exactly. God's trying to get our attention with something. In the book of Judges, we're told that everyone did what was right... In their own eyes there was no set standard the standard was themselves like today the people then viewed themselves as good and loving and kind and as they are the good standard they're the standard of what is right and perfect there's no need to listen to God or to know God we see this isn't even unique with the Psalms or with the judges all the way back to the garden, doesn't it, with Adam and Eve. We're told that they did exactly what was right in their own eyes. See, after God had made them, he revealed his will to them. He put his will into their hearts. God literally spoke to Adam in an agreement known as a covenant. He made this love covenant with Adam, known as the covenant of life. He revealed to him in Genesis 2 these words, And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For the day that you do that, you shall surely die. Do you hear it? God set the standard, not Adam and Eve. It wasn't do whatever feels right for you, you just be you. It was God saying, you can do all of this, but not this. But what did man do? In that garden, that perfect creation that was without sin, what did man do? Man chose to live like there was no God but himself. Man chose to eat the forbidden fruit, and the fall happened. And what were the consequences? The consequences of Adam's disobedience affected all humanity who came after him. Scripture tells us in places like Romans 5 and Romans 3, Ephesians 2, again and again and again that man is hostile to God, that man is born in sin, that man is not righteous. And yet we see the culture push against this, disregard this, thinking that they can do whatever is right in their own eyes. But the problem is, they're foolish. That's what the psalmist says. It's foolishness. It's absolute foolishness. Look what he goes on to say in verse 1. He says, they're corrupt. There is no one who does good, not one. Their entirety, the whole planet, is filled with sinners who live for themselves who seek to do what's right in their own eyes, seeking to please themselves rather than God. Oh, but if we only truly knew God, if we truly only understood our need of him and his ability, if we truly understood that God is holy and just, if we truly understood that God is love and merciful, if we only truly understood that when God says something, He's saying what is best, what is true, what is the standard. Why? Because he's God and we're not. We were made in his image, not God made in ours. To prove this, the psalmist goes to great lengths. But one of the most amazing things he does is he wants us to understand that while we may not see God, know this, God sees you. Imagine the weight of that. Well, you may not see God. Well, you may ignore God. Well, you may think God doesn't exist. Know this God sees you because God is overall. Because God is overall, He sees and He knows all. He knows who we really are. The truth is, we may be able to fool ourselves, we may even be able to fool those around us. But there is absolutely no fooling God, for God sees everything. Look at verse 2. God looks down from heaven, his holy dwelling place. The place where the angels sing, holy, holy, holy. The place where perfection is because God dwells there. This is who God is. The one looking down from heaven in his holy dwelling. The God who is holy, who is perfect. He looks down in his holiness, which is far superior than any understanding we have of holiness. He looks down. And what does he look to see? He looks by his standard to see is there anyone who understands? Is there anyone who seeks God? What's scary about this is God's not just looking at the outward, but God is looking at the very heart, the thoughts, the desires of man. And what does he discover? Verse 3, they've all fallen away. Not some, not most, not the majority, Not just certain political parties, but they all have fallen away. This is who we are. This is the world we live in, a world captured by sin, enslaved by sin. Sin is touching every aspect of who we are. Well, it's true. We may not all be as sinful as Adolf Hitler. Every one of us is touched by sin. Sin is the problem. Sin is every aspect of what we do. It oozes from us because it's in us. Therefore, when God looks down from his holy dwelling place, he says, they have all fallen away. He goes on to say, none do good, not even one. Friends, what's so amazing about that is that God didn't just destroy the earth in that moment. When Adam and Eve sinned, he, he had every right to, to completely annihilate the earth right then and there. But he didn't. Sin is a problem. It's a problem that all humanity faces because all humanity is born in sin and therefore all humanity is preoccupied with themselves rather than God. Friends, don't miss the imagery here. The psalmist pictures for us this God who is high and lifted up while man is low and in sin. God is superior. Who are you to say there is no God? God. God must laugh from the throne of heaven, not because he finds joy, but because he sees such foolishness. You see in verse 4, the psalmists say, They work evil and have no knowledge. They work evil and they have no knowledge. They just continue to do more and more evil things. They produce more and more wickedness before my eyes, and yet they have no knowledge of me. Look how he ends verse 4. They do not call upon God, they don't call upon him. The natural response when you're proved you're wrong is to repent, but they don't because they're fools. And this foolishness will cost them. For by accepting a far less view of holiness, they're in great danger, we're told. The prophets of old would warn them. Noah preached of the impending doom, but no one believed Noah and judgment came. And later, after the earth was restored and the waters receded, And population grew, sin grew with population yet again. And there were other preachers, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they all preached, but none were heard. Later, John the Baptist would preach, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Again and again, the preachers came. Even in our writings of books such like Pilgrim's Progress, there's a character known as Evangelist whose job is to go through the earth and warn of judgment. He tells that the city of destruction will be burned up, but nobody listens. Friends, preachers have been called to warn of the coming day of judgment. Yet my fear is that many preachers today never talk of sin or judgment. They would choose rather never to preach on a passage like this because it's uncomfortable. It makes people unsettled, but all the while forgetting the reality that we are but fools. We are but fools who believe that we are in charge. See, this is what makes listening so important. We don't get to judge ourselves We don't get to pat ourselves on the back and ask for a mulligan. No, we are judged by a holy and perfect standard by God, who is the judge of all, who sees all. So, what's the point? The point is this the fool will be judged for his rejection of God and God's standard. There will be no hiding. The call by the psalmist is to be wise, to wake up from our sleep, to recognize our need. See, the point of the psalmist is found in the very last two verses. He says, knowing this great terror makes for a great salvation. That's what he's pushing us toward. Knowing this great terror makes for a great salvation. This great terror of God's standard and judgment makes God's pursuit in salvation so much sweeter. But there it is. right in the midst of that message that man stands, man is in great danger. They're in a great danger, but they fear the wrong terror, according to verse 5. They fear the wrong terror. What's the terror people fear today? They fear a false terror, a terror of having their feelings hurt. I don't want to hear what you say. I don't want to hear what you declare about God's truth. Rather than truth be bespoke to them, they seek to silence all except themselves. We're known as the great canceling generation. Canceling anything we disagree with because we simply disagree with it. Because it makes our feelings hurt. Missing the fact that what this makes us is fools. Fools. Because judgment is coming. But there is good news. Because in the midst of that judgment, there's hope. Hope for those who receive it. There's sweet salvation for those who look for it and find it in God. Those who call out, those who cry out, those who look up, those who look outside of themselves. There is hope. A sweet salvation. For those who look to God, to those who see his holiness, those who therefore recognize their sin, those who begin to repent and acknowledge their wrong. One of those prophets of old, Ezekiel, said it this way, For I have no pleasure in death of anyone, God said. So turn and live. See, that's the key, isn't it? Turn and live. Don't be a fool any longer. Turn and live. This is the hope. Yet for the fool, judgment awaits. But for the wise, for those who recognize that they need a standard outside of themselves, for those who repent because they don't meet that standard, there is hope and restoration is theirs. Look at verse 6. For salvation would come out of Zion. That was the hope of the psalmist. That salvation would come from their own. And Salvation has come. See, what the psalmist looked for has arrived. Salvation has, in fact, come out of Zion. The salvation has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus that God restores the fortunes of his people. Don't miss this, church. As in Adam all became sinful and await judgment, so in Christ we're made alive. And we await the promised inheritance. What a contrast. It's a sharp contrast, just like the sharp contrast between foolishness and wisdom. Why would you choose what ultimately can condemn you rather than what can ultimately save you? Because it means I have to look outside of myself. And some would say, That's scary. But friends, how much more scary will it be when God returns? And every man has to give an account for his foolishness. See, this is what makes the contrast so sharp. This is what makes knowing who Jesus is and what he came to do so much sweeter. Because Jesus came and took upon himself our sin, our foolishness, our condemnation. And he nailed it to a tree that we deserve so that we could inherit his righteousness, his holiness, his perfection. But to receive that, we must repent. We must repent. Repent. And for those who do, look at the end of our psalm. Let the people be glad. He uses the term Jacob in Israel. He's referring to God's people, and God's people we understand that to be not just the people of old, but the church today. Those who truly recognize their need of God, their need specifically of Christ, those are whom should celebrate. Because salvation is yours. Salvation is found in Christ alone. May we seek him. Let's pray. Father, as we close our Bibles, as we step away from a very heavy text, Lord, that I believe many would choose never to preach, I pray, God, that our hearts are stirred to make sure that we are pursuing the way of wisdom. That, Lord, we're looking to the word of God to be our standard rather than the world, rather than ourselves. God, I pray that if we have come to that understanding and we can celebrate the wisdom of Christ as he's described throughout the scriptures, God, I pray that we would be wise in sharing it with others. That we would call others to look outside of themselves and to look to the sweetness as found in Christ. God, I pray that we would truly know you. For by knowing you, we will know ourselves and we will know the sweetness of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. God's people said,
0: This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.